and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Thanks. I'm doing great. How are you, David? Thank you, David. <laughs> doing well. So we are here to to discuss the concluding sections of The Remains of the Day. It's that time for us to talk about The Remains of the Book. Um, I just thought of that. I did not plan that. Um, <laughs> if I had planned it, it would have worked. Been <laughs> right, nailed it. <laughs> so we are here to to discuss the final two sections of Remains of the Day. Uh, before we get into that uh, in depth, though, I need to say a quick word from our friends over at New College Franklin. This episode of the Close Reads is brought to you by New College Franklin. Through the college years, students go through an intense period of growth intellectually, spiritually, socially, and emotionally. And as you think about college options, consider not only what you want to do, but who you want to be. New College Franklin is dedicated to spiritually forming students by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. As a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee, New College focuses on the great ideas, the trivium, and the quadrivium to contemplate the beautiful, good, and true, and to respond with wonder and gratitude. Find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. So thanks to them for partnering with us and making this podcast possible. And check them out. If you have a student who is college age or you are looking at colleges for yourself, make sure you head over to newcollegefranklin.org and check them out. Maybe head over for a prospective student or a family uh, weekend or a visit or uh, set something up with them. They'd be happy to show you around and talk in depth about what they can do for you. So again, newcollegefranklin.org. Tim, weren't you there recently? I was there... September. September okay. I was there. Okay. I love okay. that place. New College is a uh, New College itself is great and, and yeah. uh, Franklin Tennessee is also great. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree I mean, both to both. Maybe go maybe be careful about buying a house there right now because it's expensive, but great great <laughs> place to live. <laughs> so, you might uh, be competing against Johnny Depp. I mean there are all these famous right, famous yeah. people that own homes in Franklin Tennessee. Wow, that's really cool. Well, and Close it, Reads listers are having a meetup there here coming up shortly. Are you really? On, yeah, I saw that on Facebook. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it is, it's pretty cool. That is cool. Are you, I take it either of you, neither of you are going then. I wish I could. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I would love to be there. So hopefully sometime that will work out. But this time they'll all have to sit around and share their amazing thoughts without us. I know. <laughs> they could always record it and put it on a podcast feed. Be the best. <laughs> the Close Reads Listeners podcast. Um, hey, David, can I say yes, something? Or, yeah. I feel yeah. like the banter... I'm just, I think I'm speaking for myself, but I'm wondering if I'm also speaking for you guys. We're doing a little banter, which is kind of part of what we do at the beginning of the show. Like the ethos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I am going to want to do a little bit more banter, but <laughs> I shouldn't because I feel like there's this sort of like damn holding back all of this emotion of this final chapter because mm. this chapter is so so heartbreaking it is so heartbreaking i was listening to i, I have it on audible mm. and i was listening to it as i walked up the hill from my what i call my office which is just this coffee house where i do a lot of my writing and i was listening to it on headphones and there are all these cars zooming by it's like 6 p.m and i'm in the kind of like you know final final exchange between 
Mr. Stevens and Mrs. Ben, Miss Kenton. And I'm just, I keep saying, oh no, oh no. <laughs> you know, and like, I know what's going to happen. I already know what is happening, but I just can't help. It's just so crushing. Yeah, it is. Yep. So we'll need to up the banter because there's the human warmth, right? <laughs> yes. And we need more human warmth after, after this chapter. So this is both of y'all's first time reading this book. Is that right? Yes. Although Tim yes. has seen the movie several yes. times. And I actually watched it last week in North Carolina with your parents, David. Mm. So it's the first time I had seen it. So we've got to talk about this idea of it being heartbreaking. We might as well just dive in right there. I'm curious, though, if the movie was as heartbreaking for either of you. No, I think because I read the book first and the I mean, the movie is has this pathos to it. It's a wonderful movie, actually. Um, I loved it. But I thought I think the book has more emotion because you're in Stephen's head, Mr. Stephen's head. Yeah. I felt like the book was more moving than the book was more moving than the movie. And I find the movie to be like just tremendously sad also, but there's, there are a few things that are in the book that did not make their way into the movie. Exactly. Yes. Oh my gosh. They're the most heart wrenching things for me. Mm -hmm. Like what? What Mrs. Kenton says to Mr. Stevens at the end, but we might be jumping forward, David, if we want to, Oh, we can, we can, we can go right to that. the end. No, we can go right there. I mean, some of the other stuff I think will, the other scenes and things like that will, will come up in the conversation or we'll bring them up. But go ahead, let's talk about it. I mean, we're done with the end of the book, so let's talk the end of the book. So to set the scene, Mr. Stevens is driving in the Ford to go visit Mrs. Ben. We've now, during this trip, been finding out about their relationship, about Lord Darlington. But now the kind of twofold or the two prong narrative is kind of coming together. We find out what happened with Lord Darlington and his movement toward Nazism. And we also find out why Mrs. Kenton left the manor. And now Stevens goes, he and Mrs. Kenton meet. She's married. Uh, Mr. Stevens has been dwelling on these letters that she wrote him, and he's hopeful that maybe she can come back to Darlington Hall, um, that maybe her dissatisfaction with her marriage was a signal that she was not going to be in her marriage marriage for much longer. Um, so they meet, they have dinner, and then they go to a bus stop. Oh my gosh, it's so sad. They go to a bus stop, and they're waiting for this bus to arrive, and it's very clear to both of them this is their last chance to say what they need to say to each other. Um, Mr. Stevens brings up something that she wrote in her letter in which she expresses unhappiness in her marriage. And she says, oh, no, I'm sure that I didn't say that. And Mr. Stevens, and I think he's probably right, says, oh, yes, you did. Mm -hmm. You know, like, we get the impression that is locked in his mind as this, like, hopeful possibility that her dissatisfaction might lead her back toward him. Um, and then she expresses that, yes, there were moments that she felt very dissatisfied. And I think for me, it's on page 235. 
No, hold on. Let me find it. 239. Um, let me back up to the bottom of 238. Mrs. Kenton speaking. I feel I, sh I should answer you, Mrs. Mr. Stevens. As you say, we may not meet again for many years. Yes, I do love my husband. I didn't at first. I didn't at first for a long time. When I left Darlington Hall all those years ago, I never realized I was what I was really, truly leaving. I believe I thought of it as simply another ruse, Mr. Stevens, to annoy you. It was a shock to come out here and find myself married. For a long time, I was very unhappy, very unhappy indeed. But then, year after year went by, there was the war, Catherine grew up, and one day I realized I loved my husband. You spend so much time with someone, you find out you get used to him. He is a kind, steady man, and yes, Mr. Stevens, I've grown to love him. Miss Kenton fell silent for a moment, then she went on. But that doesn't mean to say, of course, there aren't occasions now and then, extremely desolate occasions, when you think to yourself, what a terrible mistake I've made with my life. And you get to thinking about a different life, a better life you might have had. For instance, I get to thinking about a life I may have had with you, Mr. Stevens. And I suppose that's when I get angry over some trivial little thing and leave. But each time I do so, I realize before long, my rightful place is with my husband. After all, there's no turning back the clock now. One can't be forever dwelling on what might have been. One should realize one has a good, one has as good as most, perhaps better, and be grateful. So you're using this as, um, I suppose, evidence for... Um, why it's heartbreaking, I think, is the way you put it. Mm -hmm. um, why do you use that word in particular? Mr. Stevens says shortly after that that's what happens to him. I mean, maybe I could find that because these few pages are the most open mm -hmm. that these two characters are with each other. And it's after the possibility of them being together is viable. They can't be together now. And finally, they speak frankly with each other. I think that Miss Kenton was capable of speaking more frankly to Mr. Stevens when she was still working with him. But even, even she had a difficult time being direct with how she felt about him. Um, and of course, Mr. Stevens, the whole book is a book of him not being able to state what he believes. And now they finally say it to each other. They finally express, at least for Stevens in this oblique manner, that they had hopes that they would be together and it's too late. And Mr. Stevens tells the reader later that after hearing this, his heart was breaking. And so it's this, for me, it's heartbreaking because it's just this missed opportunity that both of them had and both of their lives, I think they would both, if they were candid, would say their lives suffered because they weren't able to 
speak to each other and pursue what they wanted when they were working together at Darlington Hall. And that's heartbreaking. Hmm. Heidi, would you use the same word to describe it? I am so torn about this whole section. Yes, it is heartbreaking because this is when they are confronted literally face-to-face with what they have lost in their lives. Um, And that is heartbreaking. Last week on the show, and I think I've said it several times in other shows too, that I, I said that I found the ending not redemptive, but there's been a lot of conversation on the close reads page and I've been rethinking that. And now I'm just torn. I, I really can't tell if Mr. Stevens has a catharsis, a redemptive moment here in these last pages, whether this speech that he makes, which I'll, I can read that, this speech, his response to her, I don't know what to make of it. And I could tell you, so let me read that on page yeah. it's 208 for me. And obviously, right. Did you say 250 something for you guys? 239, right? but I don't know what's 239. Okay. So we're starting with, you are very correct, Mrs. Ben. Yeah. And I'm going to back up. The bottom of 239 for people who have the the vintage. All right. Well, I'm going to read the paragraph before it too. I do not think I responded immediately for it took me a moment or two to fully digest these words of Miss Kenton. Moreover, as you might appreciate, their implications were such as to provoke a certain degree of sorrow within me. Indeed, why should I not admit it? At that moment, my heart was breaking. Before long, however, I turned to her and said with a smile, You are very correct, Mrs. Ben. As you say, it is too late to turn back the clock. Indeed, I would not be able to rest if I thought such ideas were the cause of unhappiness for you and your husband. We must, each of us, as you point out, be grateful for what we do have. And from what you tell me, Mrs. Ben, you have reason to be contented. In fact, I would venture, what with Mr. Ben retiring and with grandchildren on the way, that you and Mr. Ben have some extremely happy years before you. You really mustn't let any more foolish ideas come between yourself and the happiness you deserve. And she responds, of course, you're right, Mr. Stevens. You're so kind. Here's what I can't tell about this speech. I cannot tell if it is motivated by withdrawal and false dignity and duty again, if this is him withdrawing from her or if this is sacrificially him in a moment when he could have swayed her the other way, deciding to be silent for her sake because Mm -hmm. she's married. So is this genuine love or is this more emotional withdrawal? I can't Mm -hmm. tell. Yeah. That's the central question that I think ties the, the, you know, the resolution to this book. Yes. The thematic thread. You're exactly right. Because if one or the other is, is the answer to that, I mean, how you interpret this, I'm sure that ambiguity is left up to the reader to interpret, which is brilliant writing. The craftsmanship's amazing, but I, I'm not sure which lane to pick on this considering his conversation with the stranger. So I've been, I've just been mulling this over all week. So yeah, how you, so how you view that speech Mm-mm. is has to be determined by how you read that kind of ep, this kind of epilogue, this section on the pier. Yeah. Um, but can I, I think, Heidi, can I ask a question? Go ahead. Yeah. If you, 
and we can't do this. Obviously, this is the text that was written. But if we eliminated Mr. Stevens saying, you really mustn't let any more foolish ideas come between you and the happiness you deserve, that foolish ideas, if we eliminated that, hmm. would it change your mind? Would you, would you lean more toward uh, Stevens' self-sacrificing? Maybe, because that is, I mean, that in some ways is somewhat of a cruel thing to say. I think my, my, my hesitation is less what he does say and more what he doesn't say here. Yeah. I wonder, you know, and, and, and I go back and forth on this again, this has kind of captivated my imagination this week. Uh, This should he have said something, right? That's the should question. This is a married woman. And, and so should he say, I loved you, I shouldn't have let you go, right? Like, is yeah. this, I mean, in, for his sake, we want him to say something, right? Because we want him to have the release of this, the pent up years, you know, the years the locusts have eaten, to use the biblical phrase. Right. But... Is that would that have been wrong? So that that's kind of this thing I've been mulling over. This this could have been a great act of sacrificial love on his part, knowing she probably wanted to hear. Yes. I loved you and I still do, and that's why I'm here. Yes. Right. So that's what it would be sacrificial love. It seems as though that he loved her. well, that's my question. That's probably what she is. It sacrament is it sacrificial love that he doesn't say that, uh, knowing that's probably what she wants to hear. You know, what if he apologized her? There's no apology here. There's just you could read this speech as entirely dismissive of her moment of honesty and vulnerability, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which is again just a repetition of the pattern of their life. That's exactly what happened over and over again. She showed her heart, and he rejected it. Is this just another example of that? Or is this him saying, I will not do that to this married woman that I love? I think personally, I read this as a redemption of the things that have been flaws in him throughout the whole book. I don't, I actually don't, I'd actually, people, I don't think this is, this is not a heartbreaking ending to me. That's why I asked, um, I I asked why you use that word. I would, I, I, perhaps I'm making a distinction between heartbreaking and sad, you know? Yeah. So I was going to ask. Uh, I was going to ask if you would say that those are two different things. I think it's a sad ending, but um, I guess it just depends on what we mean by heartbreaking. But I think that what's happening mm-hmm. here is it's sort of a, as I said, a redemption or a fulfillment of all these things that he's been talking about for so long. The sense of dignity, the sense of honor, these things that he's so taken with. I think that throughout the book, he has quite often misapplied them, um, and I think that here he does what the actual honorable thing. Um, and I think that he does that to his own detriment. I think that he has realized uh. he, that he probably, it would be in some ways, there would be a sense of uh, catharsis to say what he wants to say, um, to have the conversations that he had set out to have. But then when he realizes what the situation for her was, he, he, he realizes that he has to do the honorable thing. And I think that mm. there is a moment that, that this all kind of, gets laid out it's that moment that that you read there Heidi where he doesn't respond to her Tim Mm -hmm. you read you read 
what she says and then Heidi, yeah. and Heidi yeah. you read this bit where there's this silence but I think this is the key paragraph in maybe the whole book he says I do not think I responded immediately for mm-hmm. it took me a moment or two to fully digest these words from Miss Kenton so there's this you know this is one of those things I think you could get across really well on a stage or on the screen I, I haven't seen the movie in a long time so I want to watch it with this scene in mind um so you could let that that space really play in a novel. You have to really slow yourself down to to let the weight of silence in a conversation like that really kind of be dramatic. But then he says, moreover, as you might appreciate, these their implications were such as to provoke a certain degree of sorrow within me. Indeed, why should I not admit it? So that's literally the question he's asking himself, right? Why mm-hmm. should I not say this out loud? So he asks himself, why should I not say this? Not why should I, but why should I not? Right. Because at that moment, my heart was breaking. And he's, so he's asking himself in the moment, he feels the heartbreak. He, he, he knows that in, sa- in telling her how he felt, how he feels that he has sorrow and regret, he, he knows that his heart would be, it would at least have that moment of catharsis. And that they could have at least one moment together where they say, well, what, what was us? What could have been, you know? But then at that exact moment, it shifts. There's something kind of poetic about this. The whole, that little paragraph, the little poet, the little poem that whatever's going on in his mind, that little poem has a turn here. Before mm. long, however, I turned to her and said with a smile. And I think that that word turn, I think the action of having him turn to her is mm. very important because I think that it's him turning away from that moment of catharsis for himself and doing what is the honorable thing um, and encouraging her to preserve what she has. You know, she ends her monologue by essentially saying, I've realized that it hasn't been perfect, but I'm grateful. The last word she says is grateful. Mm-hmm. And I think he then, instead of turning her towards him, he turns away from that and he turns her back towards the things that she has recognized that she's she's been grateful for. So I think that all the the inability to express things that has haunted him throughout the novel and throughout his life and which has uh, hindered his ability to connect with people, all of that is is absolutely heartbreaking, truly sad. But that capacity that he's developed that pursuit of dignity, I think in this case serves him well, despite the despair that in some ways it leads him to. So I think that in some ways that that, I think that I, so in that way, I don't, it's not like metaphysically heartbreaking, you know, to me, I think there's something really rich about that, even if it's sad. So Mm -hmm. that's where I've been kind of trying to discern between, between those two words. But that moment where he turns away to me is that's that little action that he, that, that, Ishiguro puts in there is really crucial to me. So if I was, if you're filming it or it was on stage and you didn't have him turning, um, I think that there would have to be some sort of, I think that you'd be missing the point, even though he turns to her, the fact that he turns to her, but he seems to be turning to her and turning away from himself in a, in a sense. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I think that I didn't read the ending that way. The first time I read it, I read it as, you know, this memoir of a wasted life and he, he ends it as he has begun, but I think I'm coming more and more around to this being a redemptive ending, although he is still left with the remnants of his wasted life. Yeah. yeah I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that what I'm saying there in right. that particular moment means that it's not a memoir of, of a wasted life, but I, I think agree. That what it does is I think, right. man, I don't even know if I would say that he should feel that it's wasted so much as that he should. I mean, I think, is there, is there a difference between having regrets and feeling like you've wasted something, you know? Yeah. I, 
I don't know. I've never thought about that question before, but I do agree with what you're, you're saying more and more. And I've read it several times this week and, um, and I couldn't help but think about Jaber Crow and Maddie quite a lot. Yeah. Oh, um, I didn't think that Heidi. And his very great love for a woman who is married and the, you know, the conversations that ensue from that and the, the formation of his heart through that. And that, so I, I come, I just so want him to be able to, um, to, I, I guess to have a voice. Yeah. And, um, and I still think in some sense that is denied to him, except, except then it occurs to me, that's what this book is. Like, this is literally the artifact of his voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so yeah. that is redemptive in itself. So I'm coming more and more around to this is a redemptive ending um, to the novel. But as Tim points out, it's still, there's still so much loss, right? There's still so much, you know, litter behind him that, you know, rubble. So yeah. is, the, is, yeah. is the heartbreak that they don't end up together and weren't able to tell each other how they felt or is, or is the heartbreak, um, some, or is it that he worked for Darlington for, I mean, what can you, can you pinpoint what the thing is that it's heartbreaking? For me, it's the wasted life. It's not that I'm trying to say that you're wrong. I'm just right. trying to, for the sake of conversation, make sure we're talking about the same things. Yeah, That's it's the wasted it life. Also, David, it's the yeah. wasted life. Too. And like that there's, although I am, again, I'm coming more and more around to this. There's, but this idea of him ending his life without ever committing a heroic action of any kind when it is asked of him. Although this speech could be that heroic action. So this speech, which speech, Heidi? The one that the you're very correct, Mrs. Ben speech. Yeah, right, right. I can I can I pick up the thread of the comparison between Jaber Crow and Remains the Day. It it did not occur to me. I think it's such a great comparison. Part of the reason that I find this section redemptive i don't feel it's like it's like mr stevens makes a complete turn but i feel like the thaw has begun and Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that i feel like the thaw has begun is because let's compare it with jaber crow first jaber i feel like the reader is the only person that jaber speaks candidly with during the entire book like we get his heart of hearts and he does not, he has such a hard time sharing what he thinks with anybody else in his life. And it's he like, he is a man of such profound passion and desire and belief. But we're the only one that gets it. With Mr. Stevens, we don't get that. We mm-hmm. get we get his inside voice, but he kind of lies to us a lot. And I, I I hesitate to call it lie. Because I think it is more, he blindness. doesn't see that he's yeah. lying. It's blindness. That's exactly right. Part of the reason that I find these paragraphs that we read hopeful is that that paragraph where Mr. Kenton says, um, moreover, as you might appreciate, their implications were such as to provoke a certain amount of sorrow, a certain degree of sorrow within me. Indeed. 
Why should I not admit it? At that moment, my heart was breaking. For me, that's the most candid moment that he has in the entire book, and he has it with us, who he's been hiding his life from. He's been hiding his life even from us. And I think I find that ending hopeful because he's finally candid with us. Right. For as a as a woman, I I feel in some ways, and I think this is wrong. So this is more of a confession. But I want Miss Kenton to know that he loved her. Yeah. Why do you think she doesn't? I don't necessarily think she doesn't know, but I somehow feel is, again, perhaps this is wrong, that he should say, that that it shouldn't be speculation that somehow she should just know that. But she is married to another man, and so I think that's unfair and wrong, but I can't help but want that for her because she's been trying to get him to say it for her whole adult life. Yes. Right. And the, and the book in that sense, it didn't, I mean, I think that's kind of the whole point though. It denies us as an audience, the catharsis for either of them, right? Like it it denies us that sense of resolution or what we've wanted the whole book. And so in some ways it's going to come, it can't help but be a little unsatisfying, but if it had given us what we wanted, then it's not this, it's not that it's kind of defeats the purpose of the book. I mean, I agree. I agree. Well, and Jay Crow, right? That moment when he says, and that other thing, she says, yes. And then that's her last words. Like, that's so beautiful. And, and I, wish, I want that for her in this book. And to your point, that is, we are left with the remains of the day. We're back to the title. We yeah. have these remains and we make a meaning out of them in our life. And that is a very different point of view about the world in this book than there is from Wendell Berry. And so there's... There, I, I see the, I see that, but it doesn't, even though I'm coming around to the idea of a redemption, it's still, as you say, David, that's a great word for it. It still feels unsatisfying. And not unsatisfying in the sense that it's not good, just unsatisfying in the sense that yeah, it right. Emotionally. Yeah. And, oh, it's right. brilliant. I think right. it's yeah. brilliant. And so, but I think it is. Yeah. Just like my, my heart is like, I just want more for both of them, but that's the whole point. That's, that's how they feel. Right. It's that they both feel like they have to comfort themselves with this idea that, you know, even though we regret so many things, we have to be happy with what we have. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, and the, and the reason I think, I mean, I think the epilogue is so important because it kind of resets the stage, right? Like uh-huh. it's, it's almost like the beginning of another story uh, because, because yeah, there's a lot of regret. There's a lot of things that were left undone and a lot of things that were certainly left unsaid as, as we're talking about. Um, and sure it's the evening. Um, mm-hmm. of course, as the man on the pier said, for some people, the evening is the best time of the year or the best time of the day, which is exactly what he tells Mrs. Ben yeah. as well. Right. Like for some people, retirement is, is the best time of marriage, but it's also, you know, he also has a chance to begin again. You know, he has a chance to begin learning to banter and that's, there's something silly about that, but also there's something very forward looking and something, um, you know, he, a recognition of, of the, of the fact that he can change and that the, even, even as he's getting older, even in the evening, he can use whatever time of the day that is left to start new and to, to improve, you know, to improve himself. And I think in that sense, it's meant to be sort of hopeful, even if it's sad, um, even if he didn't, even if thus far to that point in his life, he had served someone who 
uh, was very flawed and made a lot of mistakes and thus sort of by proxy, he did the same. Despite all that, there is, there is a a sense of hopefulness um, as the novel ends, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe you guys read that differently. Mm -hmm. I think this whole conversation is just wonderful. I love it. I love it. It's just like pure pleasure to read all all of the all of the loose ends that he ties into this but are still somehow left a little bit dangling. Yes. yes. Like, it's really wonderful. I'm especially fond of the final um the final phrase, the final clause. I shall be in a position to pleasantly surprise him. Hmm. Yeah. I love the concept of him leaning into surprise where he spent his whole life avoiding it. He spent his whole life yeah. pre- preparing yeah. to avoid what a to, great to not be surprised at all, but he leans into it very purposefully and he's excited by that. I think that's, um, you know, I, I, I think that in some ways that would have been impossible had he told, you know, had, had they ended up together or had he expressed that to her? I think, um, that in, in some ways, I think that, that his ability to lean into surprise and to, um, to move forward sort of freshly, I think would have been impossible. Um, so I'm really fond of that final clause. David, I think that's such a great point because l- let's imagine that he had said to Mrs. Kenton after her kind of, you know, she opens her heart to him and suppose that he says, Mrs. Kenton, I want you to know too that, you know, I pined for you every night when you were working at Darlington Hall. Yeah. And, and I regret you know, my not telling you for years. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Then I think all of the regret, it, excuse me, all of the emotional energy of the book is pointed toward regret. I never told her. Mm-hmm. She yep. never yep. told me. Whereas now, he, whether it's for um, heroic reasons or because he's still reluctant and he's still Mr. Stevens and he's never going to change. Um, <laughs> But we have like the energy. Well, of the he book. does have some habits. <laughs> you know, he does have some habits. Um, but now the energy of the book for me is looking forward toward this moment where he returns. He's with his American boss and he can practice human warmth. He can try for some sort of um, camaraderie and playfulness. I don't want to like, I don't want to like just insist on my way. Like this is a hopeful ending, Mm -hmm. but I do think there is something, I think that little glimmer of what's the word that he uses. It's not repartee, but, um, um, the kind of like playful banter. Mm -hmm. I think the opportunity of banter for me, it makes the book look forward rather than all be looking back. I think that there is... I don't think it's an accident that the book kind of ends on essentially four consecutive conversations where mm. he is a member of the conversation as opposed to someone who's been outside the conversations. So first you have That's the, con- the political conversations with these you know, middle-class, lower-middle-class people, then the one with the doctor, and then you've got the one that he has with Kenton slash Ben, and then you've got this one with this guy on the pier. And increasingly, yeah. his role on them is increasingly changing and becoming a little bit more um he's becoming a little bit more involved a little bit more open like with those people he's not even he can't even tell them who he is right and uh, then he finally uh, reveals himself to the doctor 
and he's able to engage a little bit more. And then when he gets to her, he genuinely enjoys the conversation. You know, the final thing he says is, it was a great pleasure to see you again. And that's the fact that he said as much as that, I think to mm-hmm. me would signal that when they leave that, she's going to know how he felt about her and he's going to, she's, she's going to identify that he has been honoring her uh, by not telling her. You know, I think that that was enough. I think that's like what like Jay were saying and that other thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then in this final conversation, he's able to, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a more reflective conversation. Um, but I think they all build to that final, to, the, to, the, to his final thoughts on conversation itself. So for, it's a book about someone who has not been able to say anything, um, but ultimately, I mean, I'm going to put it very tritely and simplistically, ultimately kind of learns to, to engage, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things, David, that I noticed was in the previous chapters when he's on the road and people ask him about Lord Darlington, he denies working for Lord Darlington by obliquely referring to his American, the American that he works for, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Then in this final conversation, he says, I worked for Lord Darlington. Like, I think mm-hmm. he says it, in fact, three times. Yes. I worked for Lord Darlington. And a little awkwardly, like a little yes. bit, like when there's a perfect out for him and he kind of drags it into the conversation and he does it three times after he's denied him three times. This is his Peter moment. Absolutely. That I noticed, feed my sheep. I right? noticed the exact same thing. Yeah. yeah. I know that he denied it three times like before. That's so, it's, I'm so glad you picked up on that also, Heidi. And I think there's something really significant of that. It's like an ownership of his past, uh-huh. you know? I agree. It's not whitewash what has happened, but he's not going to deny it either. He's not going to try to run from it. He's like, this is, I was involved in this. Yes, Lord Darlington was, I gave him the best years of my service. And he's not going to pretend something otherwise. I think that's, I think that's, a, that's really significant for Mr. Stevens. And again, I can't help but read it as, hopefully, gosh, I pray that mm-hmm. the thaw is on. Right. I, I've noticed something, you guys, I don't know if you feel this way about Mrs. Kenton, Heidi, but I have this desire. It's almost like a need to protect Mr. Stevens. Hmm. I have found all during this story that hmm. like he, when, when he sort of justifies letting the two Jewish girls go, mm-hmm. I was like super mad at him. Mm-hmm. But throughout the remainder of the book, I found myself like wanting to protect him from the world. Like, I don't know where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. I'm, he's very endearing to me. And I think we've all said that over the last weeks, just that he, he has this vulnerability because he's so blind to, he's trying to protect himself with these things that are never going to work. Right. It's like paper armor. Yeah, and and you want to stand between him and the danger because, in some ways, he's just still this little boy who looks up to his father as his great butler hero, and you know, like this. Yeah, he's 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 quite a character. I mean, a really wonderfully woven character. And he, I see him the same way. He is this. hyper adult little boy Mm -hmm. 
you know, he's just, he has like all of his life is spent, like David said, kind of keeping surprise out of the room, being the one with the word of wisdom, always being on top of his work. I mean, he's he is the ultimate adult, but there's this little boy inside of him that's just kind of malnourished and mm-hmm. I think that's the part of that's the part of him. Yeah, I just find myself wanting to shield him throughout yeah, this book. I agree. Well, and I think he's so controlling, which can he controls his environment, he controls himself, his he has this restraint to him. There's this constant anxiety that you know, people who are controlling are always afraid. Mm-hmm. That's he's just afraid of everything. And so he shields himself. And so anyway, yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely, but he sees himself as the shield to Lord Darlington and he feels like he failed. And, but it's not until this conversation he has with the stranger while he's weeping that he's able to say that. And I, I think this is such an important moment. Maybe his, his speech to, um, Miss Kenson is more heroic, but this moment here is the only time he ever actually says anything that is honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. He might mm-hmm. be honest with us, the reader, but this mm-hmm. is that's the moment where he's honest with a fellow human being. Yeah, and except that, when he tells her that it was a pleasure to spend time with her. Yeah, and I think that that's a good point, David. I think that was a heartfelt comment. Um, I yeah. And in this that he makes here, but in this, he actually, but he still has to stay restrained. Like he still just can't say to her, I loved you. Right. And to your point, that's noble. But here he gets to actually say, right, right, right. Did did any of this mean anything is essentially what he's saying. Mm. And, and then he comes kind of to the conclusion, no, because of the dignity comment that he makes. Right. Or is that. Okay. Right here when he's talking to the stranger and the guy doesn't even know who Lord Darlington is. You must've been very, this is on page 211 for me. You must've been very attached to this Lord, whatever. Do you guys have that? Yeah. Uh, I know what you're talking about. I haven't found it. Yes, there it is. Okay. So the guy doesn't know who Darlington is. And so, so Stevens is not talking to him. He's talking to himself. Finally, out loud. He's finally saying something in his heart out loud into the world. Mm. You must have been very attached to this Lord, whatever. And it's three years since he passed away, you say? I can see you are very attached to him, mate. Lord Darlington wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a bad man at all. And at least he had the privilege of being able to say at the end of his life that he made his own mistakes. His lordship was a courageous man. He chose a certain path in life. It proved to be a misguided one, but there, he chose it. He can say that at least. As for myself, I cannot even claim that. You see, I trusted. I trusted in his lordship's wisdom. All those years I served him, I trusted I was doing something worthwhile. I can't even say I made my own mistakes. Really, one has to ask oneself, what dignity is there in that? That is a breathtaking oh, man. moment. What That's dignity there in that? Everything. And, and what I love about this speech is that this little, honest, heartfelt 
remorseful, repentant speech, which I am now seeing this as truly repentant, is, although I am going to qualify that in a minute with something coming up. But anyway, this little speech takes all of the self-justifications that he made in the last section that we read, that we talked about last week, and annihilates them, destroys them, annuls them. Mm. Remember, yeah, he just goes on and on about how it doesn't matter if you do something worthwhile, you should just do your duty. Here, he yeah. actually admits, it, was, it wasn't even my own mistakes. I wanted to do something worthwhile and I didn't. So if that was it, I would say this was completely redemptive. But then on the next page, I can't tell again. <laughs> I love it. What about the next page, Heidi? Um, on page 212 in my book, this long paragraph with it's, it is now some 20 minutes since the man left. Okay. And at the end of it, or I'm going to pick up in the middle. It says, perhaps then. Perhaps then there's something to his advice that I should cease looking back so much, that I should adopt a more positive outlook and try to make the best of what remains of my day. After all, what can we ever gain in forever looking back and blaming ourselves if our lives have not turned out quite as we might have wished? The hard reality is, surely, that for the likes of you and me, there's little choice other than to leave our fate ultimately in the hands of those great gentlemen at the hub of this world who employ our service, what is the point of worrying oneself too much about one could or could not have done to control the course one's life took? Surely it is enough that the likes of you and me at least try to make a small contribution count for something true and worthy. And if some of us are prepared to sacrifice much in life in order to pursue such aspirations, surely that is in itself, whatever the outcome, cause for pride and contentment. I cannot tell. So wait, if this why, is, why is that? Why is that? Because that's the same argument he made. It's a reversion. He's making the same argument. No, no, no. I should just trust the great men. Oh, and just, totally. totally. So I, I really honestly cannot I tell. I don't read it that way. I don't okay, read it that way. Okay, how do you read I it? I don't read it that yeah. he's saying, oh, we should just trust the men. I think he's saying whatever, most of the time, well, the things we do are not going to impact things you know, like we, I thought I could impact them by serving a great man and that that would change the world. But ultimately I don't actually have any capacity to do that. So they're going to do whatever they want. And the only thing we can do is just go on despite the fact that they're going to do whatever they want. Is that different from his, do do you think that contradicts his kind of honest repentant speech on the, to the man on the bench? Or do you see it as consistent? Uh, I don't think I don't I think I think it's consistent with what he was saying okay. on the bench. I don't see that as being. I don't think that is what he's been saying the whole book about trying to make a mark. I think it's kind of the opposite of that. I think he's saying. Then he then I think he so then I, so then I think he says, you know, we just have to do the best we can, you know, without thinking so much about, um, you know, I think we do need to make small some small contribution and uh, try to make it count for something true and worthy as opposed to count for something you know, monumental. I think he's talking in terms of small scale in terms of, as opposed to making some big world changing impact. That's what he'd been talking about for so long. But if he, if he serves a, a really powerful, really impactful, important person, then he'll be able to make some kind of world changing thing. But here, I think he's saying it's okay for it to be small. You know, those people are going to do what they're going to do. We can't, we don't actually have any ability to, to change, you know, the course of history that they are going to do. So we have to try to find things. We have to try to find ways to do things that we can in our own small ways. Um, and, um, 
you know, that's going to be to varying degrees of aspiration, you know, like the, the scale of that's going to vary. Um, so I don't, I don't personally read that. I read that more consistent as being more consistent with his change than what he'd been saying the whole book. Maybe you're right. It just sounds suspiciously to me, like the Mr. Smith section that, um, when he's kind of just, when he calls the misguided idealism and the, he but, was this Mr. Smith was this butler who kind of like Mr. Smith was the man in the bar who was talking about um oh, yeah. yeah that section we read last yeah. week um about um whether or not the butler had to serve a good man you know, and kind of tie himself in with his master's work in the world or whatever, which could go to what you're saying, David. I just think I still remain confused about it. This, this long, this speech. Well, maybe he does. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what I'm getting to. Um, but that's- he does use the remains of my day. So I do think this is supposed to be kind of a linchpin speech or not speech. It's not a speech. It's kind of, it's, he's writing it. He's not saying a reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Reflection is the right word. Go ahead, Tim. I see. I read this as, first of all, I think David, the way that you read is absolutely like a legitimate way Mm -hmm. of reading it. I kind of read it as a reversion to this old way of thinking. And I, I, I think about myself when I have in the past had an, a strong allegiance to someone or to a place or to an idea, and then my enthusiasm for that place or idea or that person wanes, I lose confidence in them. I, I distance myself from them for whatever reason. Um, if someone came to me and maligned that place that I once had an allegiance to, even though I have no longer have a strong allegiance to it. I will still defend that, that place to the person that maligns it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, so, it, so it's kind of like, I think with two minds, I say, I no longer have an allegiance to that place. I think it was wrong for this reason or that reason. I have moved in a different direction, but still, <laughs> I will still defend it. And so I wonder if Mr. Stevens is, it's like he hasn't come to that place where he has harmonized his past with the direction that he hopes to go in the future. They're still kind of estranged for each other. And I see that as a, as a psychological phenomenon that happens all the time. Um, you can be so angry with a parent for mistreating you. But then if someone says something negative about that parent, you'll defend the parent. It's like a bizarre thing. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully in the future, you kind of can harmonize what, I'm not speaking about my own parents, but I've, I've seen this. You can harmonize your relationship to your past and your parents and yet, and not feel like you're of two minds not feel like you're holding two antithetical um, beliefs at the same time. I kind of see Mr. Stevens is in that area right now. He, he can't just flip into this new way of being yet. 
he's he's going to try to kind of hold on for the time being to antithetical convictions that I'm an independent person now and the antithetical concept is but we need to trust those lords and great men whom we serve. Hmm. I just don't think he's harmonized those two things at this point right. in the book. Right. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I don't understand the case there, the argument that you guys are making about his take on trusting them. I, what? So wait, how, how are you reading those that those lines about that we have to just trust them? I think that he believes that. I think it's a reversion to an earlier part of the book where he's disagreeing with that kind of renegade butler who thinks so, that we should think for ourselves. So you're saying he thinks that just by trust, that we should just trust them because that's the honorable thing to do? Yeah, I think he believes that at the end of the book, but he also doesn't believe that at the end of the book. I think he's of two minds. So earlier in the book... And the section I'm talking about, my it's at the very end, like right the page before day four afternoon begins. So it's the very last mm-hmm. page of the section we read last week. Um, so in my book, it's on page 176. And he says this, one is simply accepting an inescapable truth that the likes of you and I will never be in a position to comprehend the great affairs of today's world. And our best course will always be to put our trust in an employer we judge to be wise and honorable and to devote our energies to the task of serving him to the best of our ability. So on page 212, or right where we're reading in our section, he says, the hard reality is surely that for the likes of you and me, there is little choice other than to leave our fate ultimately in the hands of those great gentlemen at the hub of this world who employ our services. Sure, dot, dot, dot. Surely it is enough that the likes of you and me at least try to make a small contribution count for something true and worthy. Now, the difference between those two is that phrase true and worthy that you pointed out, David. And that could be the redemptive phrase. But to Tim's point, it's the same wording in both sections. So again, it's that repeated, those repeated words that we keep getting in this book uh-huh. and that, that indicate a connection that he doesn't even notice himself. And so I, I saw that again in this paragraph and kind of my hope, my, not my hope for his redemption, but my hope that the redemption had already come kind of crumbled a little bit. Was like, oh well, he's saying the same. Well, it's twenty. Thing first of all, it's twenty minutes later. I mean, he's literally writing this at minutes after it happened, so he's processing. You know, that's structurally, I think that's worth noting. But also, I mean, I think. What do you mean, twenty minutes later? It's he's sitting there writing twenty minutes after the man on the pier walked away. Right, and two days, two days after he read, he wrote the first thing I wrote, which was before his catharsis in his conversation with Miss Ben and with the stranger. Right. So what you're talking about right before day four afternoon. Uh-huh. Yep. So right after he goes to the bar. Right. Um, I'm trying to find the exact thing you just read. Okay. It's one is simply accepting it's in the middle of a very long paragraph on that last page. One is simply accepting mm-hmm. an inescapable truth. Okay. Um, I still don't, I, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, to me, this is, this is him being a fatalist. I mean, I don't, I don't, 
think in both is, in both sections. Yeah, or I don't in, think. I mean, yes, I think it's just about how he like where he goes with it. I mean, I think he's a cynic. Right. So then that that to your point, that is exactly which a cynic is what a frustrated idealist. Which my point is then I'm not sure that these cathartic moments accomplished the great change that we would want for him. You mean because it makes him not a cynic? We would want him to not be a cynic anymore? Well, because this is the final conclusion, the remains of my day's um, reflection is what what we would hope for would be kind of these redeemed conclusions about life that he has come through as a result of connecting with this stranger and his sacrificial moment with Miss Ben, that they would have accomplished kind of a, a general change in the way that he perceived his life in the past, a redemption of his memory and the conclusions well, that come from it. The conclusion though is the stuff about bantering, watching the people on the pier and then, and then, uh, it's concluding that 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 in that that he can move forward by learning to banter essentially i mean it's it seems overly simplistic but the turn happens after what you're describing here in my opinion. right well and i think that that's important what you're saying is is super important because the conclusion that he does seem to come to is it matters to connect with other humans right i mean he's been a fatalist but then in the end he says you know what Ultimately, yes, I can't really change the world, so to speak. These guys are going to do what they're going to do. And I don't, I think he still says, yeah, I mean, the best I can do is find someone who hopefully I can, I can work, you know, we, we got to do the best we can for the people we're working for. And hopefully they're the right kind of people to work for. I don't think he's changed on that perspective, but I think that he's saying that, you know, each of us can do our own small parts and we can change in our own small ways and that that's going to um, change, that's going to make, well, I'm going to, again, I'm going to use a cliche, but that's going to ultimately change the world and for, for the better. Right. Um, well, and I think your point is really valid that, that what, what he's, what he's seeing is I was so attached to Lord Darlington and, and my duty and what I had believed to be dignity. Right. And then maybe the next step of that is exactly as you point out, but the real, the, the choice I could have made and I'm going to make now is just to connect with people. Mm. Right. And he makes a big distinction between Darlington and Faraday in the final paragraph by saying, you know, Faraday is someone who expects this of me. Mm. He expects me to engage with people. And whereas Darlington seems to have all these messed up relationships. Um, so I think even that distinction itself su- suggests that he has a, he, he is seeing the person he's working for currently in a different light and that that's the, there's some hopefulness in that as well. But Tim, Heidi and I have been arguing here for a few minutes, ar- you know, arguing, <laughs> we use the term looseness. You wanna, you wanna jump in? We actually I'm should start thinking about here. wrapping it up. I'm sitting over here thinking about like what the heart of the disagreement is. And let me see if I can say it. It doesn't start me as like a tremendously heated disagreement, but <laughs> this is this is David and I when we argue. Right. You're, this is like a raging <laughs> That's argument. That's such a right good now. point. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, but what if we look at it this yeah. way? <laughs> Would that the world disagreed? And well, and the- I admit I'm very <laughs> conflicted about this ending and whether or not it's redemptive or not. Although I am coming more and more around. You got your well, I don't okay. Me, away at that before no. we before Tim says what he wants to say. I don't necessarily think that we shouldn't feel conflicted about. It. I think that's kind of the part of that's kind yeah. of the point. I think that he's processing these things 
so you know part, he says he says to the uh, to the man he says i'm sorry i'm so emotional about this i'm quite tired i've been traveling for a long time and i think that that says that's about more than just the fact that he's been on the road for 6 days i think that's, yes. he's speaking I've to this entire en- journey enduring a journey of the soul exactly and so i think that <laughs> yes. he's he's here at the end where he's reflecting on it and the really the conclusion there is no conclusion to this story yes. there's an ending to this point there's there's a moment at which this particular book has to end but the story is not over and so exactly. i think that feeling conflicted about it is not wrong. I think mm-hmm. that we're supposed to feel somewhat conflicted about it because, and that's yeah. how he feels about it. Neither, neither we as readers nor Stevens himself get the catharsis that that you know we're used to in fiction. And mm-hmm. so I think that's normal. I think that's right. I think your your response to that is appropriate. Um, so I'll end full stop. <laughs> <laughs> David, is part of what you see in the book is that Mister Stevens had this very impoverished vision of what dignity was. And by the end of the book, that understanding of dignity has been like greatly expanded. He now sees, he now sees that this pursuit that he had, that he had such a hard time defining early on. Now he has a better sense of it. And it's much broader than what he imagined it was earlier in the book. Yeah. I think that he has a, um, Overly idealistic uh, view view of dignity, which leads it to be a little bit inhuman. And I think that he is, by the end of the book, he's beginning to learn that his definition of dignity is perhaps not wrong, but how that gets lived out in truly human terms was wrong. And so Mm -hmm. he asked how you balance the uh, sort of the definitions of our ideals with the lived out realities of them is, is much more complicated than, you know, just by, than just living by the definition itself is, you know, right. and that there's human beings that that get brought into the equation. They're, there's not abstractions; they're real people, you know. And I think he dealt yeah. with people on abstract terms because he felt because his idealism led him to that. So I think there's some there is some sort of no no. He's, there's a noble approach that he's after there, you know. There's something noble in his his desire to to uh, live by a certain set of ideals, but the, it's much more complicated than than he was allowing right. him to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Impoverished is a really good word to describe his vision for dignity. Mm. I think that that's really good. Um, let's do some final thoughts. Um, we will answer people's questions next week. So make sure that we, uh, you leave your questions on the Facebook page. We'll post a thread there. You can also leave them uh, on Instagram. We'll post a We'll put a post up there where you can leave your questions or if you want to email them, it's closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. Um, so go ahead and, and uh, leave us your questions and we'll answer those next week. We'll get to as many as we can. Um, sometimes that means a lot. Sometimes it means like three, depending on the questions that get asked and where <laughs> they take us. But um, with that, let's have some final thoughts from each of you. Uh, Heidi, I'll let you go first and then we'll let Tim have the final, the final word uh, for this episode. I do have a final thought and it has to do with Mr. Cardinal. So this mm-hmm. is the final thought I was going to yeah, say. I figured he's going to come up in the Q&A yes. episode. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, and there is some discussion on the Facebook page this week. And so I had told some listeners that I definitely would bring it up in this episode. <laughs> so um, I, I will. Um, so some people were asking what... What's the deal with Mr. Cardinal? Did anybody notice that he was there? Um, This is a really good close reading from our listeners, by the way, um, that 
they noticed that on those two crucial nights um, when Mr. Stevens kind of, I guess, boasts is probably too strong of a word about his dignity. When he says, these are the moments I was the most proud of, those 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 moments um, that Mr. Cardinal was there for both of them and that Mr. Cardinal was kind of the voice of reason in both of those. And he always tried to connect with Mr. Stevens both times, sit down, let's talk. I have something to say, right? So mm-hmm. and treated him as a human, not just as a butler. And so the, the readers asked, do you think that's significant? And I think it absolutely is significant. And I think that if there's uh so they were talking about, and we can get more into this in the Q and A episode if anyone's interested. But that um, his name, I think, is really significant, and they talked about that too. What's up with his name? It's like the name of a bird, right? Which in the very first uh, conversation that Mister Stevens has with Mister Cardinal, he's trying to talk to him about the birds and the bees and nature, right? So they were kind of asking, is that the meaning of his name or whatever? And Sometimes a name is just a name. Most of the time, a name is just a name. But sometimes names are significant. And I think in this case, it is because Cardinal could refer to a bird, but it can also refer to uh, its Latin origin, which is hinge and kind of this hinge point, something that something is hanging on. Mm. Uh, principle of first importance. You know, we have the cardinal directions, the cardinal numbers, the cardinal virtues. Um, and so I do think kind of the, the way that that boils down is that there's an orienting point. And I think Mr. Cardinal uh. tries, tries to be the moral orientation point in these moments in which Ms. Lord Darlington, his godfather, is deviating from goodness. And he's there to try to steer him back. He's in many ways this cardinal direction for him, especially on that second occasion. And, and which is when what we just read this week. And I think it's very important. And he's of the younger generation and there's a lot connected with that, I think. So, but then the sad part of it is that he gets killed in the war. And yeah, so th- that feels very hopeless. I, I definitely, I mean, I think the cardinal virtues thing is important. You know, what, and what are the cardinal virtues? Justice, temperance. Yes, prudence, fortitude, fortitude, courage. Yeah. And so I think that those are definitely, he's supposed to exhibit those things. And the fact that he dies is certainly, you know, is certainly important. I, I also couldn't help think this time reading through that it also is, a, also cardinals are a part of the church. I don't know yes. if that has anything to do with it, but it did pop into my mind. Yep. Yep. High ranking officials in the church. So, and I'm not trying to allegorize the book at all. Sure, like sure. I don't do that. So, <laughs> but this I think is important. I think it's a little bit on the nose because he's such a minor character that it's kind of a way of drawing attention to, um, to that. Personally, I'd much rather it be a minor character because I think sometimes the minor characters are what helps us draw attention to themes. If it was a major yes. character, it would be, yeah. a little, it, it would lean towards allegory. Tim, you got a final thought? I, I want to say before I give my final thought, I think that Heidi, you're onto something, especially because Mr. Cardinal, just that name compared to the other names in the book, the other names in the book are very kind of like commonplace English. Mm-hmm. Stevens, Smith, Kenton, and Cardinal seems a little bit like an outlier, as if our author wanted us to kind of pay a little bit more attention. Mm-hmm. Maybe Cardinal is a very common name in higher British society, but I don't, it doesn't strike me that way. Right. 
I don't know. My my closing thought is about how Mr. Stevens speaks and responds and how our author draws attention um, to Mr. Stevens' heart by showing how he speaks. So I notice in this final section, I think it's the only occasions where Mr. Stevens' sentences break. Hmm. So he will start a thought and he will discontinue that thought and he will go into another thought that doesn't happen. I think in the entire book, even in like his most heated moments with Mrs. Kenton, he still speaks with coherent, complete sentences, which denote coherent, complete thoughts in himself. That's good. But, Tim. but at yeah. the end, it starts, it breaks on a couple of occasions. Hmm. And I, the other thing that I wanted to point out was, um, Heidi read the section where at the very end of the book, he's having a conversation with the man on the pier. The man on the pier says, you must've been very attached to this Lord, whatever. And it's been three years since he passed away. You say, I can see you are very attached to him, mate. So Stephen's response has nothing to do with how attached he was to Darlington. Instead, it's a justification for Lord Darlington's, what kind of a person he was. So he says, Lord Tarlington wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a bad man at all. At least he had the privilege, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think as a habit of, when when those sorts of things happen in conversation, they happen all the time that you respond, you say something, and instead of responding to what's being said, you speak in a different direction. And it's a signal that the person is is involved in their own thoughts. Stevens is involved in his own thoughts. It seems like Stephen is having an argument with himself about what type of person Lord Darlington was. And I think our author does a, just a delightful job of capturing through speech what's going on inside of Mr. Stevens. Right. Yeah, that's really good. Or it could mean that you're trying to steer the conversation in another direction on a podcast. (laughs) Or that. (laughs) Well, you know, something different now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of steering the conversation, we probably should uh, wrap this up. And next week, we will get to as many questions as we can. And we'll have plenty of conversation, uh, concluding remains of the day. After that, of course, we're going to dive into uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the John Le Carré novel. That's a pretty short book. It's only about 200 pages. So I'll have a schedule posted for that here soon. And then after that, we're going to be doing uh, Sense and Sensibility. Don't forget that on the Plays The Thing, we have... Uh, just started our Julius Caesar episodes. So on Monday, the first of those will go up. That's with uh, Brian Phillips, Matt Bianco, and Heidi's on that as well. Then after that, we're going to be doing Othello. Well, then after that, we're going to be doing The Tempest, then Othello and Macbeth. I know Tim's involved in a lot of those Shakespeare uh, episodes. So be prepared for all that. We also have The Daily Poem, of course. 
And we've got lots of other great content on the Cersei Institute and Close Reads Podcast Network. So check those all out. And don't forget that you can sign up for the Close Reads newsletter with a new book coming up. I'm going to be sending out a new email with a bunch of links and information on that book and the author and critical analysis of it and things like that just to prepare you for it. So uh, you can sign up for that over at closereadspods.com. And of course, there's lots of conversation over on the Facebook group and on the Instagram page. So check all that out if you're interested. If you want to just keep listening and keep to yourself, we respect that as well. Uh, just don't turn into Mr. Stevens. Um, <laughs> with that, thanks so much to to both of you, uh, Heidi and Tim. It's been great. Oh, this is Terrific choice, good... David. Terrific yes. choice. What Love a great it. book. Yeah, I'm glad that people... Always a little unsure, you know, of what people are going to think. I mean, not just you guys. I want you guys to enjoy it, but the listeners as well who invest so much yeah. time into it. So I'm always glad when people are enjoying it. Um, all right. Well, for Tim, for Heidi, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week and happy reading. Mm-hmm.